Welcome back to Word and Table, a weekly podcast on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship and why it is vital in our world today. I'm your host, Alex Wilgus, and I am here as always with Father Stephen Gautier. Welcome back, Father Stephen. Great to be back, Alex. Father Stephen is the canon theologian of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest in the Anglican Church in North America, and he is Director of Formation at St. Paul's House of Formation in the Greenhouse Movement. Father Stephen, today we're going to talk about one of the church fathers um, who, as well, come to see, kind of has a different reputation depending upon uh, which part of the church you ask, even though his writings have uh, have successfully influenced both halves of the church, both the West and the East. Um, but this is John Cassian. Um, and I don't know, he's one of those guys that I don't know a whole ton about. I've read some of his stuff. And he strikes me as kind of a, as, as one of those guys who is into the monastic stuff, like spiritual and mystical kinds of things. Is that accurate? I don't think of so much as mystical. He certainly is, plays a key role in spirituality and monasticism. Okay. Okay. A very key role. Got it. Well, let's, well, let's get into that and especially uh, his history and, and his importance and why, why is he, he, why is he one of these figures that let's say there's a different, there's a different shade of light thrown on him, depending upon whether you're coming from the East or the West. Mm -hmm. Yes. And again, he's so respected in the West, you know, he's much more popular. We'll find, find out later in the East than he is in the West as far as a person, but his writings are tremendously influential in both matter of fact, Benedict, you know, the same Benedict of Nursia says in his rule to read, uh, to read Cassian. Mm -hmm. He says, wow, this guy, you've got to read him. <laughs> okay. Okay. Got it. So, so, um, yeah, so, so let's begin. Let's start with his, with his background. So where was he, where is he from? Where is he born and, and what time period is he born in? Well, he's born, uh, think of the century of the first two councils, uh, you know, in the fourth century, he's born actually after the mid fourth century, about 360. He's born, this is interesting, he's born at the mouth of the Danube River in the Black Sea. And what's really, from a deeply Christian family. Okay. Now, why of all places would that be the perfect place to be born? Because you think of Romania, they call it Romania, land of the Romans and things. You know that uh, even though it's in the East, is that uh, it's the heart in, in Greek civilization, but he comes from Latin extraction. So he actually knows Latin and Greek perfectly. Oh, that's, which that's is unusual, put, yeah really unusual by this time by this early on it was everyone all the all educated romans but by this time at the end of the fourth century the, the guy knew them natively i mean he was from latin extraction living in a greek environment and so it's amazing that way so he's a perfect person to be able to sort of bring information from the east to the west got it got it okay he so speaks he's both <laughs> well that makes sense why why both sides would would like him so much um, yeah, he really understands both natively, uh, you know, as far as their cultures. He has a great classical education, or at least a very good, I should say, classical education. Mm -hmm. And what it ends up is early in his adolescence, he hears all about, of course, this um, monasticism. And he says, I've got to see for myself. So he has this friend named Germanus, who will be a big part of his life. And they decide to go on a field trip, the world's longest field trip, to learn about monasticism. <laughs> world's longest field, field trip, trip field trip yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, that was, that was a pretty dramatic field trip at that point. So, yes. okay, so he's uh, yeah. ju- so this is not unusual then, fascinated by monasticism. He's inspired oh, by yeah. a lot of the same things that his contemporaries are. A lot are. of people. This is an exciting yeah. time. Remember Athanasius wrote his great book about uh, Anthony, mm-hmm. the life of Anthony and things. So they're into it. So they go say, let's go to Bethlehem. So he's still an adolescent. He shows up at Bethlehem. And we have something very, he stayed there for two years, but something happens while he's there that's neat. There's a, there's an Egyptian abbot who's fleeing Egypt. You know, he had run into some problems there. And so here's someone who knows intimately knows this, and he tells him about these great things that are happening in Egypt, about, you know, the heartland of things like Anthony. And he says, wow, this experience so moved him that he said, I, I've got to see this for myself. So he and his buddy go down into Egypt to find out, have a direct experience of monasticism in the heartland of monasticism. And boy, do they see everything. <laughs> they spend like 14 years down there. They go to, uh, remember we had uh, Nitria was one of the very first of the uh, monastic sites there. And remember, it got so, it's got such a, it's so overloaded with monks, they had a second secondary source a little way off called Kelly of the Cells. <laughs> Because I love this where you're a hermit. It's just getting too crowded around here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then we had the Overcetus, as which really is out way, way out in the desert. So he spent quality time out in, in, in all of these places. The, these are the three real heartlands of what are going to be the writings we have from the Desert Fathers. He had a brief return to Bethlehem, spent more time in Egypt. So in total, he spent about 14 years down there. And finally, the trouble was Egyptian monasticism was strongly influenced by Origen, mm. you know, one of the great uh, church writers. Uh, and so what happens is a lot of monks are forced to leave as a result of the conflict over Origen. So he's forced to leave Egypt. So the question is, where do I go? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we've talked about this, right? The the, the yeah. Originist influence in, in monasticism, right. how that can kind of cause problems later on and especially through Evagrius Ponticus which we've got to do an episode on this guy mm-hmm. a very important person um, but in any event so they're off to go he has, they have to leave Egypt so he goes out of Egypt out of Egypt right that's it right 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 okay okay so he so so he he's he's forced to leave um, what do we know why he's forced to leave like is he yeah because of the originist but is he is he involved in some way like how does no he's never get accused of that well yeah not inevitably his monastery or something but because of all the the chaos he has to leave oh, okay i see sometimes you're in the monastery where some of this is going on everybody gets kicked out okay 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 got it got it okay so where does he go next well he goes to constantinople you know, he goes, and that's really interesting. He could talk about meeting all the right people. <laughs> yeah. He actually, he actually goes there with John Chrysostom, the John Chrysostom, one of the oh, great yeah. fathers of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, he's ordained deacon by John. And he only leaves when John Chrysostom gets kicked out. Remember, John Chrysostom runs into the wrong, uh, irritates the wrong people. Mm-hmm. He's exiled. And so he was close to John Chrysostom, so that meant he had to move again. So he says, I know another capital. He moves to Rome. And there he has a lengthy stay. And guess what? Who he meets now? Talk about meeting all the right right people. Leo the Great. Okay. Yeah. He's filling out his CV. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's like you, you couldn't make this up. Yeah. Uh, he's ordained a priest in Rome then. And then he moves on to, to the south of France, to Marseille. You know, on the south coast there, the great port city of Marseille. And he settles in there as a priest. Okay, here's where I'm going to do my thing. And he founds a monastery. That's, you still see the Church of St. Victor in, in Marseille. It's a very famous church in Marseille, mm. the Church of St. Victor, but he has a monastery there. Now, they already had the monastery out at Le Rhin. 
So here's what's different about him that's really going to change things. Because they had monasticism in the West, but it's sort of do-it-yourself monasticism. You know, people get the inspiration in the diocese, etc. Sure. So his goal was, he had actually seen everything firsthand, is people made this choice between living together. Remember we talked the Cenobites, people who lived together in monasticism, uh-huh. versus the Anchorites, the people who lived as hermits. He thought you could combine the two together. You don't have something that could actually combine elements of both. And so that's what he really does. That's his unique thing is to come up with the synthesis of, of the best of, of both of those. And he starts writing down things because there's a bishop elsewhere in Provence in the south of France there from a town called Apt. And he said, I'm going to have this monastery in my diocese. Give me some help. You know? uh-huh. <laughs> so he writes down some things. He ends up dying in uh, 435. So that's for a brief bio. Got it. Okay, so... So, boy, this guy had experience. He, he, he knew everybody and saw everything. Yeah, yeah. So he's had quite a tour of the, of the Christian world in that, in that time. Yeah, and he had the perfect background for it. He has a good classical education. He knows perfect Greek, perfect Latin. He goes everywhere. He visits everything personally. I mean, the guy combines experience and reading. Amazing. Well, let's talk about the, talk about the writings that that he leaves us. And again, as we were talking about, they're so highly regarded in both, both the West and the East. So what do we want to be reading from, from John Cassian? Well, the two most famous of his books, which really bear reading, uh, is the first called, we tend to call it the Institutes. It's saying, basic, basically say instructions. Institutes come from a Latin term having to do with, um, we like to think of the Christian, the Institutes of the Christian Religion with Calvin has to do with the Latin word had to also do with uh, study and uh, or uh, teaching. How do you, how do you learn about something, teaching uh-huh. something? And so he says basically some instructions for people who want to live together, Cenobites, you know, and this is actually an introduction to the work that's to come. So he writes a work, a full work is an introduction to another work and we call it the Institutes. And it basically says, and you'll love this, the first part is practical stuff about living in community. Mm. And some of it has to be, uh, is really getting into the weeds. And then comes a part that everybody loves. So let's kind of getting into the weeds. You know, basically, how do you dress? And he emphasized you need to be, it needs, the dress needs to be practical, modest, uniform. Everyone needs to wear the same thing is the idea to avoid, you know, distinctions and things. Mm. Traditional, it shouldn't be something outrageous, should be something that fits right in. Adapted to local needs, you know, it's going to have to change based on climate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So that kind of thing. So general advice saying when you set up a monastery, you have to take those things into account. But the goal with monastic garb is practical, modest. Everyone wears the same thing. It should be nothing that stands out. It should be traditional, adapted to local needs. So this is where you've talked about how the, like starting a new monastic order today, it would be probably your source for clothing. Best source of clothing would be like Old Navy. Or Absolutely. <laughs> That's the idea. It's the yeah. idea is not to stand out. Sometimes you get people get into it. I'd love to, to dress the, 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 the special stuff. Yeah. The idea of monastic robe was the opposite, was not to stand out. It's like the reason priests wear black is black was supposed to be the least um, in, of an individual statement. It was sort of the absence of color. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the idea was you're not trying to draw attention to yourself. Right. It's sort of like the Amish, they call it being plain. Yeah. Or the Mennonites, to be plain. That was the idea. Okay. Then in his second book, he talks about, you know, he, he thought it was very important that they have vigils, you know, this nighttime prayer in the community. They get together, you know, in the watches of the night. It's a special spiritual time. Mm. Then he has a book talking about how do you sing the Psalms together, you know, about how do you order that. And then he says, okay, how do you choose who's going to actually be in your community? Everything depends on having the right people. 
So he says admitting and forming candidates. Got it. Those are the first four books. Ben Lee's works five through 12 are the ones people love. Uh, we have to do an episode on the um, on the seven deadly sins, but actually, through, thanks to Evagrius Ponticus, he had come up with eight okay. that are later uh, go down to seven. And so we have those eight here. And so we have this discussion of the eight capital sins and their cure. Here are the things you have to avoid, the capital sins, the deadly sins, and here are their cure. Uh, when I was a kid, this uh, younger, this was also something that's intriguing because when he talks about lust, his advice is so practical that certain portions, they wouldn't translate out of Latin. Ah, I see. Actually, you'd still see that if you look in the standard, um, you know, the three the three set, what is that uh, called? You know that, uh, Father Alex, um, that everyone has, the standard 19th century translations. Is it Schaff? I think that's it. But it's the standard set that everyone would have on their, on their shelves. But I believe they have a whole paragraphs there stay in Latin, so they can't come on curious eyes. <laughs> okay, okay, got Figuring it. if you know Latin, you're old enough to know, uh, to to read this. Uh huh. Uh huh. But I thought it was the neatest thing that certain things in books were not translated. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Okay, great. So so we've got his his institutes. We've got his conferences. So right, but we had the institutes. See, that was the institutes first. That's a yes. sort of introductory book. And again, there, there's stuff. The the discussion of the seven deadly sins and their and their and how we overcome them is great. We'll have to do a separate episode on that. Yeah, it's a great thing. And then we uh, there's a whole actually there's, a, there's sort of a literature of this kind of thing. Evagrius of Ponticus did this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so does in the East. One of the most popular books ever written was the latter which in Greek is uh, uh, Climactus. And so they have, uh, that's where you have John, Cl- uh, you know, John the latter, yeah. John Climacus, uh, is the one, which is the same thing. It's basically say a monk has to go up this ladder of virtue. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so John the latter, you know, John Climacus. Okay, so, I mean, that whole seven deadly sins thing really catches on. Um, oh, yeah. So, I mean, even today, it's pretty, pretty common to hear about that. But it's kind of like a well, so, codification of virtue and vice. That's right. And so what they do is it's basically like, you know, a program if you had personal trainer or something saying, here's our program. You know, first we're going to do this with you know upper body strength or something, et cetera. It's designed, how do you make, cover all the bases? Mm-hmm. So people are really interested in improving. They love this kind of thing. How do you get advice on each of these things? Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like a personal, uh, an overview of where you are and how you can get better. I see, I see. Okay, so self help. So a bit of okay. bit of a self help book, I was about to say. <laughs> nice, nice. Then we have the conferences. Now the conferences is the most most popular, and what he did is he had these conversations uh, with when he was down in Egypt. He made it a point to go and talk to the most famous people. You know the monks who had the best reputations. Now some people argue that this is uh, just a literary genre. I don't believe that. I with a lot of scholars, I agree with them that I think they're the real conversations. Oh wow. He talked to he talked to the real monks. And we just asked them about their experience and things, uh, you know, their spirituality and, and things that work for them, their practice. You know, how, tell me about your life. Yeah. You know, what have you learned? That kind of thing. You can imagine it's great. It's three separate parts with 24 chapters. This is so popular that uh, there's a word that came out of it. We don't use it much. It's an English word, too. Uh, in French, it's very common, the word collation, collation. But in the 19th century, it was just a regular word. It meant a, a light uh Sort of the American version uh, in this country was the American version of high tea. Yeah, yeah. Sort of finger food, that kind of thing. Yeah. It was a collation. And it came from, the, the book in Latin is called Collationis Patrum. Okay. 
Colationis via Colations. And Benedict said you should read this during dinner. It was such a good <laughs> okay. book. This is a book that you should read to monks when they're having dinner so they could profit. Nice, nice. So that's why it's so important. That that's why you get the word came from this. The monks, that's what they would listen to. It was one of the key spiritual readings a monk in the Benedict Order would hear when they're eating dinner. And the third book, uh, not in the same realm as far as importance, uh, was on the incarnation. Leo the Great asked him to write the book. Okay. And he did. So he was, he was involved in some ecclesiastical controversies as well he was called in for that right and that's where we get to, that's a really good segue into the different treatment in the east and the west yeah yeah you see he got involved prosper of aquitaine which is in southwest france you know you're getting you're getting closer south of gaul is what you'd call it at that time they were getting into the thing of pelagianism mm-hmm. and he was accused of being semi-pelagian by prosper, prosper of aquitaine now it's interesting that uh he wasn't condemned for this until i think a hundred years after his death so um, okay. but he, he got involved in the controversy so what happened is in the west his writings were so important so widely read it's sort of like tertullian if you want to look at origin there's no question about reading this, this stuff and he doesn't talk about the, these kind of things in his writings uh-huh. you know so no one wanted to get rid of the writings but he just wasn't honored much as you don't hear about saint john cassian interesting okay but in the East, he's regarded like very highly thought of and is referred to indeed as St. John Cassian. He, I think he has the neatest, uh, the neatest Saints Day. You know what it is? I love this. February 29th. <laughs> so, so, yeah, isn't that yeah, neat yeah. to show ambiguity? It is he's funny. on February 29th. It is. <laughs> yeah. So, so, wait, so, he's, so he's accused at the time of semi-Pelagianism, but not condemned yes. until like a no, century no. later. Okay. And part of that's going to show something. We really should talk about Pelagianism detail sometime because yeah. it's one of those classic things that separate. In the East, this is not an issue. Hmm. Hmm. And in the West, it's a big deal. And so that's why you see the difference here. Yeah. Anything that, that in the least has the least hint of Pelagianism gets to be stamped out in, in the West, whereas in the East, um, what a lot of things would be called semi-Pelagian is just seem like regular teaching. Yeah, yeah. So the East doesn't, doesn't take it that way. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, great. So, so that's so it's it's mainly though these institutes with the seven deadly sins and his conversations, especially the conversations, yeah, yeah. with various uh, fathers that he and his friend had gone down to um, hang it out. It was with. a beautiful thing. It's like an anthology of all that's best in this life. You're talking again interviews with really great monks. If you're interested in monasticism, yeah, like, you're talking to the best, like a great interview series. Cool. A great yeah. interview series, you know, like you know, the best baseball players or something. Okay, okay, great. Although actually, there's no evidence I've got to tell you that any of the um, monastics play baseball. Just for the record. <laughs> so, um, so what are his, what's his? So I guess if you kind of survey his work, what are kind of his main uh, his his main focal points that have have been preserved in the tradition that we remember uh, most fondly? Well, one is his whole thing. If you go through all all of this, it comes down to monastic perfection. As he said, you know, remember our our, our ideal is the life of the community in the Church of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. That's really the model of living together that you're trying to you're trying to in, incarnate. And he also again combines the elements of the. Uh, for example, uh, remember how we. His basic point is to be a hermit. That we, he didn't want to lose this part of the Christian monastic tradition. 
But he said, you know, that's not for everybody. That's sort of a grad school type of thing. Some people have the care, have the, you, first of all, you have to, if you can't live with people, you shouldn't be out living on yourself. You, you have to go through that. <laughs> so everyone needs to start with a cenobitic life. But there are some people who are actually called beyond that into a uh, an eremitic life, you know, my, like his hermit. So he would actually have a situation where you have your monastery, but there'd be a, uh, the possibility to sort of go out from the monastery and live alone uh, yeah. know, in eremitic life, connected with the monastery. Right. And he loves the example, inspiration of the th- three greats, John the Baptist, Elijah, and Elisha, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as being these uh, were, were great uh, models for monastic life. So it's like everyone starts in community, and then you might be one of those specialists that graduates to the the, yeah. the kind of wandering hermit type type spiritual life. Okay. And not wandering hermit. Uh, hermits uh, stay in one place. Or oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Typically. Yeah. Uh, one thing here that's uh, interesting with that, of course, part of that is the spiritual truth that you can read in the, the literature that, you know, if you can't love your neighbor, <laughs> you don't really know how, you, how far you're going with God if you can't love your neighbor. So if you can't prove a life in community, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this is not a, you're not running away from people. You're coming, you're getting closer to God and bringing their needs in a special way. You're not running away because you can't get along with people. Yeah, interesting. You can't love God and love, love your neighbor. So you have to make a success of the cenobitic life. Hmm. That makes sense. You got to be able to live with other people. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's pretty smart. I think that's wise. That's wise. And I love his notion of spiritual perfection. He said at first, you know, what often gets people with God is just a sense of the fear of the Lord and the sense of punishments and things. You know, my eternal salvation's on the line. But he said our goal is that, you know, love casts out all fear. He loved that for love casts out all fear, meaning that we get to the point where our only fear is to hurt the one we love. Mm-hmm. Is that we're not afraid of being punished ourselves. We're afraid of the fact of being unfaithful to the God who loves us. Yeah. Like how you feel your, your only fear is to, let's say, hurt your, hurt your spouse. You need to do something that would actually hurt their feelings. Mm. I love that idea. The spiritual perfection comes to the point where it's not about my being afraid of God at all. My only fear is... is to <clears throat> not be doing his will, not be close to him. I see. So it's like a perfection of love, really. It's like yes, perfection of grow love. More exactly. and more in love. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's 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 incredibly profound. And then scripture and prayer, both the idea of scripture and prayer infused by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. This is very Eastern. The Eastern Church really emphasizes the notion of pneumatology, the work of the Holy Spirit the study of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works through our meditation on the scriptures and opens the way to authentic prayer. So I love that. Remember, it's always the Holy Spirit. What makes things valuable is the Holy Spirit does his work in us. You know, he opens the scriptures to us. You know, he works through our meditation to open them. You know, he makes our prayer his prayer. You know, and then the goal is permanent prayer. Hmm. He calls it the prayer of fire, the contemplation of God himself. Hmm. Instead of looking at a reflection, it's like imagine if we could go from beyond... uh, looking like in a, in a um, eclipse where you sort of look in, you look indirectly at things to see where the sun is. Uh, here, you know, somehow a contempl- an actual contemplation of God himself. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we've got, so, so he's obviously someone who's in tune, not just with, with theological truths, but how they're worked out in, in the present life. Um, yeah, he's a monastic. I mean, this whole life has been devoted. How could I get closer to God? Yeah, yeah. So how does that? So that that that's very influential on both on the both the West and the East, right? I'm, I'm kind of like hearing valences yes. of of both emphases for sure. 
Right. Uh, he's um, deeply honored in both. Uh, he's probably more influential in the West in the practical sense that Benedict is so important in the West that when he says, you know, we all have got to read, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. we've got to read these, that has had a long-lasting influence. It's like, you know, having a very famous person. Uh, uh, you know, for example, for years, uh, French people coming to this country back in the 18th and 19th centuries, well, actually, I should say the 19th century, rather, is there's a guy named Bernard Saint-Pierre wrote a novel, Paul de Virginie, and they have these, they don't have to know about the novel, but it's a very widely read novel, mm-hmm. and it mentions them going and seeing Niagara Falls. Okay. And so the thing ever since then, French people who come to this country, now it's a wonderful thing to see, but of all the things in North America, right. it's been a standard thing on the list, you have to see Niagara yeah. Falls because everybody reads about this thing you've got. Or it used to be like in Wisconsin, they have a place called Wisconsin Dells. <laughs> and when you go there, you're to wonder, why do all the people come here? It's, it's okay, <laughs> but it certainly doesn't stand out. And the reason is Mark Twain mentioned it. That is so funny. In Life on the Mississippi, I believe, he says that it was the most beautiful thing he had seen. Wow. And so people based on every used to, we used to read that book, when you read something like that, you say, I got to see that. That is hilarious. Yeah. So this, uh, <laughs> so it certainly was helped by the fact getting a, getting a promo, you know, a product placement from uh, Benedict of Nursia. Sure, sure, sure. So the... <laughs> <laughs> if we could just have told him about word and table. Right, right. Get a, get a blurb on his, on our blurb. On yeah. The yeah, in the rule. yeah. Yeah. Get a revised rule saying, you know, you guys, that there's a lot to say about the collations, but that word in table is what you should be listening yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one, one century, I'm sure. Uh, yes. Great. Well, anything else you have for us on John St. John Cassian? I think the best way to see him is in a group of, of three people who are very, very important for this kind of writing. Almost the parallel thing that's really a popular piece is John Climacus, The Ladder, a book I particularly and personally fond of, mm. the, the Ladder by John Climacus. Matter of fact, you see these everywhere. If you ever see an, if you ever see a, an icon of a ladder with angels, uh, people falling off and angels going up and down, that's The Ladder by John Climacus. These steps to spiritual growth. Mm. But it's sort of the John Cassian of the East. It's more uh, popular in the East. And then Evagrius Pontus was basically a lost author because in, in practical sense, most people didn't know him because he was accused of originism. But now we know his writings and things, and they're good writings. And so he has a lot in this. He comes up with the, the eight deadly, the eight, the eight sins and things and how to overcome them. Mm-hmm. But those three, to read them together is to really have a really good idea of idea of how, of, of again, spiritual, again, like going to the gym, how do I, how do I get in shape? of their idea of spiritual development. Well, thanks so much, Father Stephen. Thank you for listening to Word and Table. We'll be back again next week for more on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship. Thanks for listening. <laughs>